We're nearing the end of this series through uh, exploring some specific topics about the local church. And as we near the end, uh, Lord willing, today and then one more next week, uh, you've seen that we've been working through this definition of a local church. And we could have lots of different definitions phrased different ways, but the definition that we've been working through is this. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now, we've walked through that definition, looking at a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name. We've considered what it means for that group of Christians to, as they gather regularly, uh, to oversee and affirm one another's citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Uh, We've also looked then at what what preaching is and what that has to do with the local church and how God builds up his people, uh, calls a people to himself through the preaching of his word and and really builds a church and builds up a church through the proclaimed word. And here we come to the very last section of uh, this definition, which is gospel ordinances. Ordinances is a fancy word. I don't know if it's a fancy word. It's a It's a little bit bigger word, and and a lot of us know what it means, but not necessarily know why it means what it means. So ordinance really is just a way of saying something that's been ordained, something that's been uh, commissioned, given. And so the ordinances of baptism and communion, or the Lord's Supper, are the ordinances that we practice as a church. Things, practices, rituals, uh, symbols, practices, these things that have been given to us by Christ, ordained by Christ for our good. And so today we'll be exploring the topic of baptism, and then next week, Lord willing, we will be looking at the topic of Lord's Supper. Now the question lies, what the ordinances have to do in a definition of the local church? Are they a separate thing from the local church? Are they just something that the local church does? Or are they actually a really integral part of what makes a local church? Uh, I would argue that that last thing is the, the truth, that, that it is the ordinances that, that too build up the church, like gospel preaching. And so that's why it's part of this series. And if you remember back, or if you were here with us, uh, I used an illustration in the first Sunday uh, that talked about the Christian life kind of be like being like playing baseball. If you met someone who said that they were a baseball player, you, you, would, uh, you have a picture in your mind of what that looks like. But then if you found out that they never actually play baseball with anyone, uh, they may still be a baseball player, but they're not really playing baseball in the way that the founders of baseball likely envisioned it. And so we drew a parallel between that and the Christian life, how the Christian life is meant to be lived out, joined to a local church, to an identifiable assembly of Christians. Uh, and that, in that relationship, it would be a meaningful relationship. In that relationship, there would be discipleship. There would be accountability. It would be a committed fellowship. Now, here at Heritage Grace, we call that committed fellowship membership. Now, churches don't have to call it membership. They don't have to practice it exactly as we practice it, but that's what I'm talking about when I say membership. Committed, accountable, meaningful fellowship with a local church. And it's through this concept, this understanding, that we see that God's good design is that the Christian life is a team sport. It's like baseball. It's meant to be played on a team. Now, how does baptism fit into all this? Well, I want to make an argument that baptism 
functions a lot like, if we are a team as a church, baptism functions like the jersey that we put on. It's how we identify with the team. It's how we say what team we're on. When we are baptized, we put on the jersey of Christ, okay? We'll work out this, this metaphor as we go a little bit. But putting on a jersey matters, right? You watch maybe the NHL draft, and they read out someone's name, or they call out someone's name, and they come up on stage, and what's the thing that they do? They put a jersey on them. It symbolizes that this person who's been drafted into the NHL, or pick whatever sport you want, is now part of the team. They identify with that community and all that comes with it. And so God has given us something to do exactly that in a one-time way, in an initiating way, and that's baptism, and then in an ongoing way, which is the Lord's Supper, which again, I will tease out a little bit of that this week, but I'll try to hold back and not talk about it too much until next week. But baptism, you may be thinking, man, how's he going to talk about baptism for 40 minutes? Is there enough to say you dunk someone and it's, that's it? Or maybe not even that. Or maybe you're thinking and you've thought about the topic of baptism and you're like, what is this guy thinking? Trying to talk about baptism in one sermon. There's just too many roads to go down. There's too many facets in this conversation. Well, uh, that is, I think, the correct assumption. There is a lot we could talk about, about baptism. We don't want to get lost and step on too many landmines along the way. But I hope that this sermon it serves as a, an introduction, if nothing else to build a foundation, because there's a lot of topics as we explore the topic of baptism about how baptism is to be practiced, who should be baptized, those kinds of things that really rely on having a firm foundation of an understanding what baptism is. And so that's my goal, is that after this morning we come away with a clear picture of what baptism is. And I would encourage you, if you have more questions about baptism, maybe this morning actually kind of drums up some questions for you, I would love to talk to you after the service, or you can reach out to me through the week. I would love to talk more with you about this. Uh, you, many of you know I love to give away books, and it's been a long time since I've given away books in a morning service. I normally do that in the evening. But I do have one book here. It's called Understanding Baptism. The title says it all. It is mercifully short. It's a great little book uh, by an author named Bobby Jamieson. And so if you have questions about baptism, this would be an excellent uh, complimentary primer for you. If you want to dig into some things that you hear this morning and you want to go a bit deeper, this would be a great book. It'll be over here. You can just snag it or maybe I'll be holding it. Come get it from me. Highly recommend it. But again, this is laying the foundation. And I believe if we lay this foundation of growing in our understanding of gospel ordinances, these things, these practices that have been ordained by Christ, we will be strengthened as a church. And so that's what we seek to do today. The big idea as we talk about baptism is really just a summary of the points that we'll be working through. There's a lot of things we could say is the big idea on baptism, but this is what I think we're going to work through here. Baptism is participation, identification, and incorporation with Christ and his church. Baptism is participation, identification, and incorporation with Christ and his church. And you'll see that the points we're going to work through are really just expansion on each of those words. Baptism is participation with Christ in the saving events of the gospel. Baptism is identification with Christ since we are in Christ. And then baptism is incorporation into Christ's body, the church. Okay, there's a lot of things going on in those points in that big idea, but let's work through it. So first, baptism is participation with Christ in the saving events of the gospel. Now, baptism is something that Christians have always done. 
Uh, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned his followers to baptize, to, to proclaim the gospel and baptize those who are saved. And then we see that the church is obedient to that. And after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, in the early church, it says that those who heard him were cut to the heart. They repented of their sin. That was their response. They respond in faith, and then they demonstrate that faith through baptism. And then we see that immediately after their baptism, they are added to the church. Now, baptism was a thing, though. Not, uh, it was a thing prior to the early church. It's not like baptism was just drummed up as a, a new uh, ritual or practice for the early church. Uh, we see examples in Scripture where uh, John is John the Baptist is baptizing people in the River Jordan, and in that case, we see that baptism is a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism that signifies cleansing, right? Going, being lowered down into the water and being raised up, and and this, the symbolism there is being cleansed uh, from sin. That's a significant symbol as we think about the topic of baptism even this morning. That it is that it does represent a cleansing. Uh, being, being cleaned from the sin that, that threatens to cling so tightly to us. Uh, but there is more to Christian baptism than simply a baptism of repentance. We see that faith and baptism are so closely connected in Scripture uh, that, that, that this, this significant meaning is certainly wrapped up in the topic. But a big qualifier for us to talk about is that baptism does not save Baptism is not necessary for salvation. We can see a perfect example of that with the thief on the cross. When Jesus says to the thief, you'll be with me in paradise. Well, that man was never baptized. And so baptism is, and we know this for, for many more reasons, baptism does not in and of itself uh, absolve you from sin. It does not save you in and of itself. And we can see how distortions to this understanding uh, can affect the practice of baptism, even throughout church history. We can see where there were times where baptism was seen as a necessary element for salvation that people would say, well, we need to baptize babies as soon as possible because at the same time, infant mortality rates were so high. And so it was saying, we got to baptize these infants if, if we want to give them a fighting chance. And so there was that side of the coin. Another side of it would be people that thought, okay, baptism, it's a one-time cleansing that you can have and they didn't want to punch that ticket too early and so what they would do is they would wait to be baptized till as close to death as possible uh, just because they thought hey I want to limit the amount of time that I can sin between being cleansed in baptism and dying well we can see the flaws of that way of thinking we don't always know when we're going to die and so you're playing a high stakes game if you are practicing baptism this way but either way these aren't helpful for us because we need to understand that baptism is not in and of itself the thing that saves us. And a more modern, maybe more relevant example for us today would be considering uh, a similar distortion that maybe sometime in our life we prayed a prayer, uh, maybe we walked an aisle, uh, and then we were dunked in water, and then we are banking on that as our assurance of forgiveness. We go on, our life doesn't change at all. We live life however we want, but we say, you know, I've been baptized, therefore I'm good. And unfortunately, I think that is a, a troubling understanding. And it's a reason why we need to be careful in the topic of baptism, that we don't have this false uh, sense of security if we are indeed not secure, that we're not resting too much hope in our baptism. 
But still, baptism does represent a cleansing, a cleansing from sin. It's just not the act that in and of itself accomplishes it. But I hope you understand today that baptism is more than just something that points us to the gospel. It doesn't just point us to the saving events that happened. As the point that we are working through says, baptism is participation with Christ in the saving events of the gospel. And so to explore this concept, would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I'll just be reading verses 1 to 4 right now. And the question lies as we look through the book of Romans, the first five chapters, there's a lot of talk about the gospel. There's a lot of talk about how we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But then the question comes up, similar to that question I posed earlier about the distortion we could make about an understanding of repentance and faith, where maybe someone would say, oh, I have, uh, I've confessed my faith, and uh, I can live however I want then. And Paul is addressing that question right there. I remember a coworker of mine one time told me that. He said, that, this is why I think Christianity is the best religion, because you can live however you want as long as you say sorry. Now, that's a distortion to Christianity because God has called us to live in a new way that the way that we live would then be, it would be evidence of a changed heart. And so that's what Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 4. Let's hear God's holy word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul gives this great, by no means, how could we go on living in the, the death of our sin, if we have died to that sin. And we are now walking in this new life, this life of fellowship with God because of what God has done for us, because we are justified by faith. And because we are justified by faith, it's, it's not this just get out of jail free card. Because if we continue to sin, if we live in this unrepentant, sinful way, we are demonstrating the reality of our hearts that we do not have fellowship with God. That for each and every one of us, because of our sin, we have, we have created a chasm between us and a perfectly holy God. We are lost because of our sin. But God saves us not just by giving us a gold star because we did some good things. He doesn't save us by just looking the other way one day and going easy on sin. The good news of the gospel, what Paul has been working through through the book of Romans, really the, the story of the entire Bible, this arc of redemption, the story of redemption, the good news is that there is something so much greater than just getting a free pass, that actually the gospel declares substitution, that Jesus, the sinless son of God, would come and substitute himself in the place of sinners. He would take on himself the sin of the world, even though he himself was completely sinless. This is the heart of the gospel message. 
And that when Jesus took on the sin of the world, he died. And he died so that we might die to sin. He died so that our sin could be paid for in full. It's the songs that we've been singing this morning declare these truths. That that what Christ has done has accomplished something amazing for us. That our sins could be taken care of. And this, this good news of the gospel is so much more than simply a transaction that happened. It's the fact that Jesus stood in our place. He died the death that we deserve, and he rose in victory. And the good news of the gospel is that more than a transaction, his death is our death. He died for us. He died so that we then can die to sin. And so the question is, when did we die to sin? We died to sin when Jesus died on the cross. And and we rise in victory with Christ. His death was our death. His burial was our burial. His victory is our victory. It's not something that we need to do over and over. right? We don't need to be constantly getting baptized to signify this. When we are baptized, it, it symbolizes a participation with Christ in the saving events of the gospel. We see that in the very next verse in Romans chapter 6, verses 5. Look for the word united. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now we could go on a very long uh, journey exploring this topic of union with Christ. What does it mean to be united with Christ? Well, union with Christ means to be joined to him. It means to be connected with him, not just in this transactional way. It really means to be joined. And I love the, the common language, which certainly could be applied to Romans chapter 6 here, the language that we see through the Bible of the, the kind of horticultural imagery that we see of a, a dead branch being grafted to a living vine. That is the way we should think about salvation. That is the way we should think about what it means to be a saved sinner. That we are not simply a stick that, you know, dies and falls off the vine and we're simply saved from, you know, the fate of a lawnmower or a dog coming by and finding it and we're just set aside somewhere but still a dead stick. Or we're not just seen as a precious thing and, you know, woven into a wreath or something. The hope of the gospel is new life. That we don't stay dead that that dead stick that we are would be taken and grafted to the vine and that we would receive new life through what Christ has done. That we die to sin, not because we got our act together, but because we have been saved. The hope for every Christian is that we are not simply, as I said this morning as, as our service began, we're not simply pardoned criminals. We are joined with Christ and so to die to sin is, is seen most perfectly in what Jesus did when he actually died for your sin. And as Jesus rises in victory or rose in victory, we too can rise in victory over our sin, over this crushing weight that would fall on us apart from Christ. And this is pictured most perfectly in baptism. This is why baptism is uh, a participation 
with Christ in the saving events of the gospel. That's what we see here in Romans chapter 6 as it talks about us uh, dying, being buried in our baptism, and then rising with Christ. This is why we see immersion as the method, the, the mode of baptism. It best pictures this death and burial with Christ as we're lowered into the water. And as we come r- rising up out of the water, that is when we uh, symbolically are raised to new life with Christ. Now, there's three reasons why, again, this isn't just an excursus on the mode of baptism, uh, but three reasons why we think immersion is the proper mode for baptism. First, the word baptize or baptism most commonly refers to exactly that, to immerse or to dip uh, in water. Uh, The second reason is that the biblical descriptions of baptism describe immersion. It talks about Jesus coming up out of the water in Mark chapter 1. And then third, I would say this is most convincingly, uh, or the most convincing argument is that immersion best communicates exactly this point that we see in Romans chapter 6, this union with Christ. That we die to sin. Uh, That we're not simply, as if it wasn't good enough news, we're not simply absolved from sin and sprinkled clean. We truly die to sin, are buried with Christ, and are raised up to new life. And we see that pictured in baptism. Baptism is participation with Christ in the saving events of the gospel. Point two, baptism is identification with Christ since we are in Christ. Now this is very closely related to the first point, but I think it is a little bit distinct. As we consider this topic of union with Christ, uh, throughout the Bible it's described as being in Christ. This afternoon you could read Ephesians chapter 1 and just look for every time it says uh, that the believer is in Christ or in him or in Christ Jesus. He packs it in a lot of times in one little chapter. This is the reality for what it means to be a Christian. It is to be in Christ, united with him in a death and life like his. And so the Bible knows nothing of a nominal Christianity or a name-only Christianity. Because you could grow up in a Christian home, you could regularly attend a Christian church, you could practice at least in public Christian morals, yet never truly be united to Christ. Never truly be a Christian. Because a Christian is someone who is saved by grace. It's a sinner who acknowledges the fact that that they are broken, that they are on their own. They have nothing to bring to the table. But the hope of the gospel, as we considered, is that Christ accomplished everything we need. And so a Christian is someone who responds to that message of hope, who repents and believes the gospel. But it is God's work in salvation And so a Christian is therefore in Christ, united with him. And baptism is a Christian's act of publicly uniting themselves with Jesus. This is what I'm talking about, putting on the team jersey. When you are baptized in Christ's name, into Christ, you are putting on the jersey that says, I'm with team Jesus. It's how you publicly identify with him. It's going public with your faith. It's an outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual reality. And so in one part, it is both a personal act, and in another part, it is a a public act. And both are significant. It's a personal act of obedience. We see that Jesus commands us to do it. 
And so to refuse to be baptized, although baptism doesn't save us, we shouldn't play fast and loose with the fact that Jesus commanded us to be baptized. And so to willingly disobey what Jesus commands is not a good place to be. To refuse baptism is to fail to obey the first item on the list of obeying everything that Jesus has commanded. And so it's a personal act of obedience. And if you have not been baptized and you are a Christian, I would encourage you to come talk to me and we can talk more about what that looks like as a personal act of obedience. But it's not only a personal act of obedience. I think that's a, a problem for us. We sometimes make it, we set the bar too low. That's all that we say it is. We, we don't know why, we don't know uh, what. We just say, well, Jesus said to do it, I guess I'm gonna do it. Well, baptism is also a public act of obedience. And there's great significance to this. And many other people around the world and many other religions understand this significance, even for Christian baptism. There are many Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists who are, become Christians and they can practice their faith uh, as freely as they want as long as it's in private. And their family doesn't seem to worry about it in a lot of places in the world. But it's when they go public in baptism, swearing allegiance to Jesus, putting on the team jersey of Christianity, that then they face great suffering because there's great significance in the public act of obedience. And we see this with the identification that happens, that we are baptized in or into the name of Jesus. We see that in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. Baptized into Christ, that's the language we see in Galatians 3, the language that we see here in Romans chapter 6. And then we see the, the fullest picture of that in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, talking about being baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a pledge of allegiance for the individual Christian. Baptism is identification with Christ since we are in Christ. Baptism is identification with Christ since we are in Christ. Again, we publicly act out and demonstrate the inward reality of being in Christ. And we lose that understanding of baptism if we disconnect faith and baptism. If we disconnect faith and baptism, we can't truly see baptism as an identification for those who are in Christ. Now, there are many gospel-preaching churches who baptize infants. And uh, not using the logic of the, what I said earlier about uh, just thinking uh, it's kind of hedging your bets and trying to baptize an infant before, if they were to die in infancy. Uh, there are great churches uh, who baptize infants in, in wonderful minds and scholars and theologians who are convinced that this is what they should be doing. Now, I want to just give this big qualifier that I think is helpful is that they are not delusional. Uh, they are not, we don't need to villainize uh, another perspective. I think they actually make some very good points. Uh, I just think they don't make great points for baptism. But I think they make good points for theological truths. Uh, again, this is just a very quick skim coat on an understanding of infant baptism. But a, a big part of understanding why some people would baptize infants is understanding that, that baptism is a covenant oath sign. That when a covenant is made, there's a sign that accompanies it. Uh, we understand that, right? If, if Josiah and I were making a deal uh, and we were haggling a little bit and then we shake on it, there's, this, there's a symbol that's now attached to the promise that we've made. That's our covenant oath sign. 
Now, it's not binding to us in this case, but it's the oath sign that comes with the promise, the commitment that we've made to each other. We shook on it. And people understand that in our culture, right? You know, if you go back on a deal that you shook on, uh, there's, there's a consequence to that. So that's, that's an example of a covenant oath sign. And we see that through the Old Testament, that God gave circumcision to his people as an old covenant oath sign, as a way of marking out his people. Now, those who practice infant baptism would see uh, this as a continuation, that this is a new covenant, and so there's a new oath sign that goes with the new covenant, uh, but that it really is uh, practiced in a very similar way to this understanding of uh, the old covenant oath sign. Now, I think, and this is what I mean, that I actually think there's some really strong points here. I think it's really helpful for us to think of baptism through that lens, to think of baptism as a sign, uh, as a, the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. But where we would then differ, in my understanding, versus those who practice infant baptism, is that the new covenant, in my understanding, is truly new. It's not like the old covenant. We heard that read in our scriptural assurance of forgiveness earlier, that there's something very different that happens in the new covenant, that no longer is this new covenant people a mixed community that is, is bound up in national or uh, political or familial ties, but that we see in Jeremiah 31, 34, that, that this new covenant people will be people that know God. It says, they shall all know me. And so this new covenant community is made up of believers. In Jesus' death and resurrection, it, was it inaugurated this new covenant reality. And we see that redemption, what was accomplished by Jesus, creates a people, a community of saved people. And so I love this concept of, of baptism being the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. But the new covenant people, if we understand that to be made up of believers, it would be the initiating oath sign that should only be administered to believers. Now we see this unravel through the New Testament, and we see that in our examples through Scripture, baptism is always connected with a profession of faith. We see that God's work saves us. And because of that, we are then in Christ and so we participate with Christ in the saving events of the gospel, and we identify with Christ since we are in Christ. And then finally, baptism is incorporation into Christ's body, the church. Baptism is incorporation into Christ's body, the church. Now this has been implicit throughout as we've been working through this, and it's also a consequence of the others, that union with Christ uh, should naturally progress to union with Christ's people, to this community that, that Christ has created through his death and resurrection and through this act of salvation. And so to refuse to unite uh, with Christ's people is, is simply a distortion of what we see in Scripture. It really misses something huge. This, we see this consistent pattern of uh, becoming a Christian, going public, with your faith through this new covenant oath sign, which is baptism, to put on the jersey, something that marks you off, says, I'm on team Jesus, and then to unite your, themselves with team Jesus, Jesus' people. Again, we see this in one verse in Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 21. Acts 2, or sorry, 41. 
And those who received his word, his word being what Peter was preaching, the gospel, uh, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then it goes on in the next few verses to talk about their life together as a church. And so we see that packed all together in one little verse, but we see this as a consistent pattern. We could look at Paul's own life, or Saul, uh, as he was referred to at the time, and he is uh, baptized in Acts chapter 9, verses 18, and then he immediately associates himself with the Christians who are in Damascus. And then when he has to leave Damascus to go to Jerusalem, we see that immediately, explicitly, in these next few verses, that he seeks to join the Christians there in Jerusalem. Paul, Paul models what we see all through the, the New Testament. He's on the team. He's put on the team jersey in baptism, and he unites himself with his teammates as they live together. And so to borrow another illustration as we've been working through this sermon series would be to consider our faith as our citizenship, that we are citizens of God's kingdom. And baptism serves for us as our passport. Baptism serves for us uh, like a passport. Now, a passport does not make you a citizen, just like baptism does not make you a Christian, but it is the outward and official sign of an inward reality. Baptism marks us off as God's people. It is the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. And then again, as I've said before, next week we're going to examine the ongoing oath sign, what we continue to participate in, which is the Lord's Supper, which envisions these same uh, precious realities of our union with Christ and our union with Christ's people. In baptism, individual Christians are bound to many. You are an individual Christian bound to many. And this is universally true on a spiritual level. That when you become a Christian, you are brought in to Christ's universal family. But like every other way that we see Christianity lived out in the New Testament, it, it can't just stay in this ethereal spiritual reality. It actually gets lived out in the context of the local church. And this is why we shouldn't separate baptism and membership in the local church. We shouldn't disconnect these twin realities. One author puts it like this. Under normal circumstances, baptism and church membership should be inseparable. Theologically, baptism confers church membership. So you shouldn't baptize people without bringing them into the church. And you should confer membership on all whom you baptize. And historically, this was the case. We could look at lots of historical examples, but we could even just look at well-known preacher Charles Spurgeon. In the time that he was the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, thousands of people were baptized. And every single one who was baptized was brought into membership. That was a, that was a, a joint thing that happened. It wasn't like you became a Christian, then you were baptized, and then at some point you became a member of the church. He saw that as the initiating way. It was, it was how you enacted, as, as that quote said before, they confer one another. And so if we see membership as this extra thing, that it's this extra level thing that only the really committed Christians or the Christians who feel like getting involved in church politics uh, participate in, well, of course we're going to not see these as things that should be tethered together. Because then we distort what we see in the Bible. But if we see membership as just this folding into God's family that naturally would be lived out in a committed relationship with those in a local church, I think we regain something very precious, something very beautiful. 
And it's hard work, and it's going to take a lot of teaching. But I think as a church, uh, we should seek to grow in our understanding of these topics, that we shouldn't unhitch things that the Bible doesn't unhitch. We shouldn't unhitch conversion and baptism, membership in the Lord's Supper. And so if we think of it this way, as baptism being an ordinance that's been given to the local church, we shouldn't separate baptism and the local church, both in our understanding and even in our practice. Now, it's tempting to lose this and to practice baptism with no meaningful connection to a local church, maybe in a special place or uh, some kind of monumental way. But again, we lose something very significant, that we are not only being baptized into union with Christ, we are in our baptism uniting ourselves with Christ's people. We are incorporating ourselves into Christ's body, the church. In baptism, there's a joint statement that's being made. It's your individual statement of saying, I am putting on the team jersey. I identify with team Jesus. And it's a church coming around you and saying, yes, we agree. This looks to be true in your life. You have made a good confession. You appear to be a good confessor. Therefore, we will baptize you into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and fold you into our church family. It's ha- baptism is one of the ways that the church exercises these keys of the kingdom that we've talked about from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And we can see the flip side of that coin. Everything that's symbolized in baptism that we're talking about is exactly symbolized in the opposite way in church discipline. In church discipline, a church is having to say, because of your unrepentant sin, your refusal to let go of your sin and hold on to Christ, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith. And so we see that that baptism is the the doorway into the church and that church discipline, unfortunately, has to be the doorway out. And so these are twin realities that communicate an important responsibility that the local church has in understanding gospel ordinances. Again, that's done in a one-time way uh, through baptism, and then it's done in an ongoing way as we share in the Lord's Supper. Now, we shouldn't create impossible walls, but as a church, we should be careful about how we practice baptism, who is baptized, The church needs to be able to make an assessment that that this is really indeed a credible profession of faith. And then we should baptize all who make a credible profession of faith and we should bring them into membership of this church. And with that comes the necessary privileges and responsibilities. And so as we think even of that example I gave of, of baptism being one side of the coin and church discipline being the other side of the coin, we should be careful not to baptize anyone that we aren't willing to hold up to the privileges and responsibilities of being a church member. One of those privileges and responsibilities that we hold to at this church is the accountable relationship of being under church discipline if we refuse to let go of our sin. And so those that we baptize, we should be willing uh, to practice church discipline. And when we are baptized into the church, we are submitting to that church saying, I, you know, I want to be held accountable in this real meaningful way. I want to put on the jersey and it not just be a symbol that I can, you know, wear to the games. I want to put on this jersey and be part of the team. And so this affirmation, this oversight happens in all that we do together as a church, as we regularly gather in Christ's name, as we gather to disciple one another in different contexts through the faithful preaching of the true gospel and through the affirming of true gospel confessors in our practice of baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so we can see, I hope you see, how baptism fits into our understanding of the local church. 
that a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We do that through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Again, an ordinance being something that's been ordained by Christ, a gift that he's given to his church to mark out those who put on that jersey of Team Jesus, who both personally act that out in an act of obedience and submission to Christ, and those who publicly then declare their allegiance to Christ. And so I want to just give four points of application to four different types of people, and I think these four different types of people capture everybody in the room. Uh, So four points of application here at the end. If you are here and you are not a Christian, you've heard a lot this morning about baptism. But I hope you've heard more this morning than simply about a ritual or a practice. I hope you see the hope that baptism points to. I hope you see the Savior that baptism declares. And so if you have questions about the hope of the gospel, the good news that we truly hold on to, that gives us life. Come talk to me after the service. Talk to whoever invited you. Talk to someone sitting close by. Don't leave here today without understanding deeply that it's more than just a gold star that we can get, but that we can actually be united to Christ. If you are here and you are a Christian, but you have never been baptized, As I've said, there's not a much clearer application point than be obedient to what Christ has commanded. Be baptized. And so if you want to ask questions about what that looks like, please come talk to me. If you're a Christian and you've been baptized, but you're not a member of this church or another church in any kind of meaningful, connected, fellowship type of way, I would encourage you to, to think deeply about the significance of baptism as more than just a personal act of obedience, but truly as a a grafting of yourself to Christ and therefore his people. And so if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you about that. And again, that does not have to mean joining this church. But I would love for you to be able to live out what you've acted out in your baptism in the fellowship of a local church. And then finally, if you're a member of this church, I would encourage you to think deeply about this topic, that we should take great care in this ordinance that's been given to us by Christ. And so pray that many would be baptized and anticipate each one with joy, the joy that should come with such a clear picture of the gospel, such a clear picture of participation with Christ in the saving events of the gospel. Identification with Christ since we are in Christ and then incorporation into Christ's body, the church. And so again, if you're a member here, I would encourage you to wrestle with this topic, to be able to answer for yourself uh, the what, where, who, uh, what else we got? What, why, who, when, uh, where, and when. I changed the order because of uh, the way baptism works. I want you to be able to answer those questions. What is baptism? Well, baptism is exactly these things. It's the initiating oath sign of the new covenant. It's immersion in water, symbolizing our union with Christ, our death with him, and being raised to new life. Why should someone be baptized? Well, as a personal act of obedience to Christ, in a way to go public with their faith, to put on this team jersey, and to unite yourself with Christ's people. 
Who should be baptized? Well, those that are in Christ, who profess to have saving knowledge and understanding of the gospel and uh, who can, uh, that can be observed by the church. Uh, where should they be baptized? Well, the local church. And that doesn't mean necessarily in the building of a local church, but with the assembly of God's people. When should they be baptized? Well, when their profession of faith becomes, becomes publicly evident to the church. It is all these questions that, that drum up lots of challenges as we think through this topic. But let's not let those challenges hinder us from seeing such a beautiful picture of the gospel that in baptism we participate with Christ. Think about this. In the saving events of the gospel, we identify with Christ since we are in Christ and we incorporate into Christ's body, the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious reality of salvation, that in Christ's death, he accomplished something that we could never accomplish on our own merit, that we could have our sins taken care of, and that in his glorious resurrection, in his victory over sin, we too might have victory over not only the penalty of sin, but even the power of sin in our own life. Help us, Lord, to understand these realities, to understand what it means to have union with Christ, what it means to participate with him in the saving events of the gospel. Help us, Father, to understand deeply what it means to identify with Christ because what you have done for us is make it so that we can be in Christ. And help us to understand the significance, Lord, of what it means to be incorporated into Christ's body, the church. Help us now as we think about these realities of what was declared in our baptism as we share in the Lord's Supper to live out these same realities, these precious realities of our union with Christ and his people. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that does not know the glorious hope of the gospel, that you would stir in their hearts in a way that only you can and that they would not leave here without the glorious hope of what it means to not just be spared as a, a pardoned sinner, but to be truly brought into your family as a beloved child, to be grafted to the true vine. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.